Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 25 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon. That is www.patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. I'm really excited about this episode. It's on hypersonics and artificial intelligence uh, for a number of reasons. First, I covered a piece in the New York Times on hypersonics for uh, in my intro for episode 18. A few weeks ago, I actually got to interview the author of the, that piece, and you'll hear the interview shortly. Second, I'm currently writing a scholarly paper on the impact of artificial intelligence on weapons of mass destruction. The paper will represent the culmination of my thoughts for the past few years and present a framework for how data, automation, and machine learning tools will shape nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons in the future. A key piece of the future context for nuclear weapons and artificial intelligence is the acceleration of war and the shortening of decision-making timeframes, and the interview today dives into some of those issues. Third reason, in August, uh, The War on the Rocks published a piece entitled America Needs a Dead Hand, Written by two long-timed nuclear deterrence experts, the authors proposed that we might need to automate U.S. early warning and command and control systems, which sounds a lot like the doomsday device in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. Um, I also talk about this during the interview. Finally, I just got back from Washington, D.C., where I spent three days with a group of talented people as part of my N-Square Fellowship, where we are exploring innovative ways to raise awareness about the threat of nuclear weapons. I told a few of them about my my big idea, and no one balked. Um, so yesterday, I started a blog series on my next big project. I believe the time is right to have a serious conversation about the future of nuclear weapons and their interactions with new technologies, including artificial intelligence, robotics, cyberspace, and social media. But rather than do so through academic publication, I'm going to do something a bit different. In the next year or so, I'm hoping to contribute to the conversation by creating a musical stage play called American Doomsday. Yes, I just said that. Okay, folks, if you want to read more about that, uh, I'm including the link to the post in the show notes. Um, But let's get to the interview. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. I'm here with Jeffrey Smith and Zach Fryer-Bakes. Jeffrey is the managing editor for national security for the Center for Public Integrity, one of the oldest and largest nonprofit news organizations in the country. He's had a 25-year career covering defense, intelligence, and foreign policy matters, and has held key reporting and editorial roles at the Washington Post. In 2006, he won the Pulitzer Prize for investigating investigative reporting. 
Zach Fryer Biggs is uh, has worked on national security and intelligence reporting for 10 years, working for Newsweek, Jane's, and Defense News. He recently joined the Center for Public Integrity in 2018 as a national security reporter. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So today we're talking about new technologies that increase the speed of warfare and what that means for all of us. And we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and hypersonic missiles. But I want to kick off the discussion with hypersonic missiles. Uh, Jeffrey, you published a piece this past June in the New York Times Magazine entitled Hypersonic Missiles Are Unstoppable and They Are Starting a New Global Arms Race. And I'm really excited to talk to you about this because I actually covered your piece in the intro to my show back on episode uh, 18, um, primarily because um, it's one of the best pieces out there for non-experts to get a flavor for what hypersonics are and why they matter uh, for national security. Um, so to get the audience on the same playing field, I'm wondering if you could start off by telling us what are hypersonics and how are they different from cruise and ballistic missile technologies? Uh, thanks very much for your question. I'm I'm delighted that you and your audience are interested in this subject, which I think needs a lot more attention than it's gotten so far. Um, hypersonics are a revolutionary new type of weapon, uh, one that would have the unprecedented ability to maneuver and then to strike almost any target in the world within a matter of minutes. They travel at um, more than 15 times the speed of sound. They would arrive at their targets in a blinding destructive flash before any sonic booms or other meaningful warning. And there are no surefire defenses, so they are fast, effective, precise, and unstoppable. Uh, ballistic missiles, a more familiar technology uh, that we've been living with for about 70 years, are different in several ways. While they travel as fast or faster than hypersonics, their trajectories conform to uh, the shape of a large loop rather than horizontal zigzag. And so they're big, and they're also big, much bigger than hypersonics, which uh, weigh just about 500 pounds. And from land-based silos, they would generally take longer to reach American targets than hypersonics would, about 15 minutes longer. Um, so 30 minutes instead of uh, 15. Cruise missiles, which also fly horizontal trajectories, somewhat similar to hypersonics, are also familiar technologies, but they move much more slowly, um, typically uh, you know, at or below the speed of sound. And so they can take hours in some cases to reach their targets. So the distinguishing characteristic of a hypersonic and what's new about its arrival onto the, the scene of international um, weaponry is its extraordinary speed and its maneuverability, which makes it very hard to stop. Yeah, and I also picked up that it's um, very difficult to detect as well. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it creates a, a less distinct uh, impression on the kinds of sensors that we've deployed now. So one thing that struck me about your piece, um, the new de uh, Department of Defense's Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, he's not exactly new, but the department is new because uh, Department of Defense had under the acquisition side had undergone some some reorganization. But Michael Griffin, um, when he was talking about his priorities, he listed hypersonics as the type priority. And that kind of threw me for a bit because you have artificial intelligence, you have bi biotechnology, you have these other technologies that are so going to are so fundamentally um, enabling across so many different sectors, but hypersonics is very specific technology. So why do you think he thinks missile technology, hypersonics in particular, should take precedence over others? I think he sees that um, uh, there's a hypersonic threat to America, which is growing, and that 
development of American hypersonics would be a good way to deter that threat. Uh, but I also think he sees the attraction of hypersonics um, as offensive weapons as well. And I think there's a third issue, uh, not so uh, explicitly mentioned, but I think he, dis he sees discussion of the hypersonic threat to America from Russia and China as a good way to generate interest in a new system of space sensors that would be needed for hypersonic defense as well as offense, but which could also be used for other purposes, such as more robust missile defenses than anything that we've got now. So it's kind of the, it's a, it's a leading edge technology that could lead America to promote and de develop and promote and deploy other leading edge technologies. And he's very excited about that as a, as a principle of, of um, as a, as a good way to respond to uh, what's happening in the world. So because hypersonics are so difficult to detect, we would have to develop and employ new technology sensors in space that would not only address that issue, but also improve our ballistic missile defense is kind of what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Um, so I'm, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, defensive, so de using as deterrence or offensive use. Um, what does the U.S. plan on using hypersonics for? Um, are, are we primarily on the defensive side here? Well, one of the really remarkable aspects about the American program is the fact that the Trump administration has said little about how it would deploy or use hypersonics while still winning broad congressional support for the development and their integration into American forces. So there are frankly big question marks about how they might, um, how they might actually be used by us. The Russians have been clear they intend to use hypersonics to circumvent the primitive American missile defenses now deployed in Alaska and California but which might be expanded to other locations, such as somewhere on the East Coast or dispersed around the globe through Aegis ship platforms. The Chinese have also been fairly clear, suggesting that their own hypersonics could be used to go after Navy vessels that threaten Chinese interests in the seas near their countries, including aircraft carriers, possibly including the substantial U.S. military presence in Guam and the Pacific Ocean, where we have uh, airfields and uh, it's a big submarine base. So. So far, Griffin and others have mostly just talked about deploying American hypersonics for deterrence, i.e. to be able to threaten retaliation if, for example, the Chinese use hypersonics against our radars and airfields in the Pacific. But the hypersonic systems America is now developing could clearly be used against a wide range of targets stretching from <clears throat> Russian and Chinese command posts and radars to include the heart of their strategic nuclear forces, namely land-based missiles. Hypersonic missiles are also ideal for waging a decapitation strike, assassinating a country's top military or political officials. And as a former Obama administration White House official called them in an interview with me, uh, they're instant leader killers. So let, let's talk a little bit about that, because that's obviously the, the offensive use of um, hypersonics potentially combined with nuclear weapons that we often fear, because if they took out leadership um, and leadership was responsible for retaliating against that attack, they could actually compromise our ability to retaliate, therefore making it more attractive to take that first strike. So do, do you think hypersonics affect deterrence? Does that kind of interfere with the formula that we've kind of lived under for many decades? Well, this is what people who've studied them are worried about that they could be used as a first and as part of a first strike against another nation's government or arsenals by interrupting key chains of communication, disabling some of their retaliatory forces, all without the radioactive fallout and special condemnation that would accompany the detonation of nuclear warheads, the traditional threat that we faced and that we've posed to others. 
The threat that hypersonics pose to retaliatory weapons creates what scholars call a use-it-or-lose-it pressures on countries to strike first during a crisis. In short, if country feels that a significant portion of their arsenal could be destroyed in a very fast and very effective but low consequence, um, because it, it doesn't involve nuclear weapons, a strike by, by an enemy, they might be inclined to use those forces first before they could destroy before they could be destroyed. And experts say that the missiles could thus upend the grim psychology of mutual assured destruction, which argues that globe altering wars can be deterred if the potential combatants always felt certain of their opponent's devastating response. The United Nations has called attention to this and said that, you know, if there's widespread deployment of hypersonic missiles, that nations fearing the destruction of their retaliatory strike capability might either decide to use nuclear weapons under a wider set of conditions or keep their nuclear forces on higher alert levels as a matter of routine. And it's complained that these ramifications re remain largely unexamined and almost wholly undiscussed. So I'm gonna unpack that a little bit for the audience. So under mutual assured destruction, the idea was that we would deter our adversaries from striking first because retaliation would come so swift and so hard that they wouldn't attack in the first place. And so essentially what I'm hearing you say is that these hypersonic weapons, um, not they would be uh, armed with conventional weapons, not nuclear weapons, could serve as a first strike undermining kind of the nuclear calculation. So if, if China or Russia could come in and take out um, U.S. nuclear weapons in a first strike, it might make us more um, incentivized to strike first or to use our, our nuclear weapons first. So just to clarify a couple of things, the Russians have talked about putting a nuclear warhead on their hypersonic missiles. Okay. We've, so far, the Americans are only developing um, hypersonic missiles that would be armed with conventional warheads. Um, there's been debate about this inside the U.S. military establishment, but so far, it's been decided that it'll be a conventional warhead. <clears throat> the Chinese are similarly uh, headed in the direction of a conventional weapon at the end of their hypersonic missiles, a conventional explosive. So if it's conventional, the, wor the experts worry that uh, you could start a, uh, a war uh, with lower consequence than if you were starting it with nuclear warheads. And you could have, you could achieve, however, much of the same impact in a first strike that you could have if you had, if you had used nuclear warheads, thus making it easier to start that war in the first place. And if wars are perceived by uh, potential combatants as easy to start, then everybody gets nervous, everybody gets trigger, they put, you know, uh, their trigger fingers are get more itchy. They each think that they better um, use their weapons before they could be destroyed. So you mentioned lower consequence a couple times, and um, just for the audience, um, I think you're referring to the radioactive fallout and the the public's um, view on using nuclear weapons. Is that kind of what you're talking about when you talk about lower consequence? Yes, and also the the the, the literally uh, lower Im impact um, because the explosive at the end or the explosive effect of a hypersonic is. Missile is going to be about equivalent to about three or four tons of TNT, not many thousands of tons of TNT. So, um, it's the damage is um, much more narrow. Okay, um, that's what I thought. Okay, um, so 
if we so we're talking about hypersonics they they move a lot faster than ballistic missiles they are maneuverable so they're more like cruise missiles in terms of how they maneuver but they fly extremely fast um you talked about reducing the time to target from 30 minutes to 15 minutes does that matter? Like we're talking about a decision time frame, so decision makers having to respond to something within 15 minutes versus 30 minutes. Is there is there a, a qualitative difference here? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, people got very nervous at the beginning of the ballistic missile era when we began to confront the reality of a 30 minute response time. And virtually everybody who's been in um, you know, at the White House and at the Defense Department and been in exercises meant to practice what it, what it would look like if they had to, if they saw an attack coming and had to, to decide what to do, has expressed anxiety and, 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 um, and worry about whether they would have enough time to make, to to make a decision wisely and um, expressed unhappiness at being forced to make a decision in such a, a small, a period of time as 30 minutes. So just imagine what it would be like if it was just half that time and how difficult it would be. I mean, even within a 30 minute time window, um, the president has, you know, from the time that I've seen uh, the diagram of what that 30 minutes would look like. And in that window, the president has only about six or seven minutes of that time in order to think carefully about the information that it's taken a while to reach him about an attack and then to decide what to do and then to, to um, uh, give instructions to the military to carry out an attack which would precede the arrival of the weapons that are on their way. So um, it's, it's already very short. And mm -hmm. you can imagine what it would be like if, it was, if that total window was 15 minutes, half that time. It would make everybody jittery and it would make everybody worry about whether they could uh, act uh, wisely in such a circumstance and make them more potentially more prone to using their weapons early in a conflict, knowing if they by doing by doing that that the weapons wouldn't be destroyed very quickly in a, in, a, in an enemy attack. So we talked a, a couple of times about um, uh, hypersonics being very difficult to detect, um, and that's why we we need to put more space sensors. Um, install more space sensors so that we can better detect them. Would we even know, though? I mean, do we even have 15 minutes? Would we get any warning um, at some point? So the people who are working on this, uh, on the issue of defending against hypersonic missiles, uh, many of, um, some of whom spoke to me uh, while I was working on my story, um, made clear that they don't know exactly what the defensive system is going to look like and how it's going to function. But they all pretty much agreed that you would see the launch of the hypersonics and then they would, as they got closer, they would more or less disappear. Um, so you wouldn't, you'd see them at the early part of their flight, but you wouldn't see them at the tail end of their flight. And that, that's of course, gives an advantage to the attacker uh, because the, the uh, country or the military force that's being attacked doesn't know exactly where, it's, where the missiles are gonna land. People have said that the maneuverability of the missiles is such that the, the zone of uncertainty about where the missiles would actually wind up could be as large as, for example, Rhode Island. Um, so, and you can't defend a whole uh, state uh, right. or a territory that, that large. So um, 
that makes it very hard to 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 defend against. So I, I think we've probably worried the audience a little bit. When do you expect these weapons to do be deployed? So when should we start worrying about this? <laughs> well, the Russians the Russians claim that they've got some that are operational now. Um, uh, Americans are not fully believing that, but I mean they've flown them beneath some of their. Um, their the one that they in particular claim is operational now is meant to be launched from one of their fighters, and they've flown it beneath that fighter in parades and. On, on important uh, military uh, days in, uh, to, to show it off. Um, the American Congress has said that uh, it wants an American hypersonic weapon to be operational by October 2022. So um, that's not that far away. And there are, there are three different uh, versions of this all being developed at great speed right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can delay our concern for a few years, but hopefully the policymakers are starting to think about this and um, getting their act together, hopefully. Um, so let, let's come back to hypersonics and turn to the topic of artificial intelligence. Zach, you wrote a piece for The Atlantic called Coming Soon to the Battlefield, Robots That Kill, in which you argue provocatively tomorrow's wars will be faster, more high-tech, and less human than ever before. Before we get into kind of the meat of your piece, let's start at the beginning again and help the audience kind of understand the fundamentals. So artificial intelligence, this is a term that gets bandied about in the media on a regular basis. It means different things to different people. So help us define it or explain it uh, to the audience. What does that mean to you? What is artificial intelligence? Well, people far smarter than I have been befuddled by trying to come up with one definition. So I'll give you the way I think about it, um, which is when I look at artificial intelligence, I'm not looking at a computer simply executing a series of instructions or directions. What I'm looking for is a computer that is in some way reacting to its environment and engaging in a learning process where it is uh, changing the way it thinks for future encounters. So, you know, you can talk about issues like machine learning, which is often used interchangeably with artificial intelligence, where that's just sort of a machine coming up with or finding patterns in data sets, even finding patterns it wasn't told to look for. We're really looking for the next step beyond that, where it is actually changing as a result of going through this data and becoming, frankly, all the more human by engaging in that sort of thinking and learning process. Oh, I think that was very helpful. Um, can you talk a little bit about, so you talked about data. How do uh, machines potentially respond to their environment? I mean, talk a little bit about the sensors that are required for that. So that's one of the reasons we're seeing a big push now. And what the article was really trying to focus on is where the technology's cutting edge is. Um, is that the ability for computers to sense and understand their surroundings uh, is improving rapidly. And the, the major uh, impetus behind that improvement is computer vision. So it's the technology that allows a computer to actually look at images and understand what are in those images, whether it's recognizing objects within the images, uh, the way those objects move, et cetera. Historically, that was an incredibly difficult challenge. And so, frankly, computers were kind of blind. And if you have a blind computer, it's going to have a hard time adapting to and making decisions about anything going on on a battlefield. Now, and this is using uh, an area of technology called neural networks is really where this has um, advanced. And neural networks are basically 
computer structures designed to look like the human brain. They're like they're nodes and connections that are not dissimilar to human brain structure. And so we've built these now and they're able to process all of the information coming in from an image and try to dissect that into uh, object recognition and, and uh, object tracking. And so that's that now that that has come on the scene, uh, these computers are able to sort of navigate their world. And so once they can do that, now we can say, all right, uh, what other patterns, what other capabilities do these computers have? Can you get a group of them, smaller robots or larger ones, to swarm together and to cooperate in an attack or a defensive capacity? Um, all of these sort of opportunities for new styles of warfare built on these machines understanding and working together uh, have been opened up as a result of this sort of sensor advancement. That's great, um, and a great segue into my next question about bringing artificial intelligence onto the battlefield. So for the past several years, there's been a lot of discussion about the dangers and or ethics of robots uh, that can kill or lethal autonomous weapons as they're called. Um, but what is really new about um, lethal autonomous weapons as they're being discussed today? Haven't we already seen um, machines and military systems that operate by themselves without human um, direct intervention, for example? Absolutely, we have. And, um, you know, we talk a little about the Phalanx uh, program, there's Aegis, there, there are several you can point to which are defensive systems, and we'll come back to that. The defensive is the critical word there. But these are systems that were designed to protect historically ships, but there have been other applications as well, from saturation attacks. The basic idea being there are too many things coming in to attack a ship or a base, Human beings can't keep up with all of the projectiles or aircraft that are incoming, and so you have to turn over control to a machine to be able to react quickly enough to defend something. Um, those all have historically been, been dependent on radar signatures. Um, radar signatures, uh, A, there's a much greater gap between, for instance, a bird and an airplane um, using radar than things like uh, images, where those two, depending on the distance, can be harder to tell apart. Uh, and so, you know, those defensive radar-based systems have been around for decades. What we're seeing now is not only using images instead of radar, but also the application of these technologies for offensive purposes. And that, that's really the big shift that we were trying to focus on in, in, uh, in the article I wrote, was that although we're not fully there yet, the military is aggressively experimenting with how uh, artificial intelligence could be used when it comes to offensive applications. So uh, most of us, when we think about autonomous weapons, um, we invoke images of the Terminator um, or Skynet. Um, I mean, what could go wrong? What are some of the dangers of lethal autonomous weapons? So you're not the only one who immediately goes to that cultural touchstone. Um, the former chairman of the uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, Paul Salva used to routinely talk about the Terminator conundrum, as he called it, which was this idea that the military was moving towards handing over control to robots, potentially, and that basically humanity would be wiped out. Um, so I think that is the extreme version. Uh, we're nowhere near that particular scenario. We're talking about much more limited applications. Uh, you know, when you look at the ethical constraints that are in place, for military use of force, it's really not familiar, or at least the laws well predate anything resembling artificial intelligence. And so there's still a lot of struggling right now with what does it mean for the 
handing over of lethal decision making to a machine. There's no current rule against it uh, within the Pentagon's uh, structure. And so the question of who's responsible if a machine kills the wrong person, is it the commander, is it the person who programmed it? These are all things that we don't really know yet. Um, there are people who have theories, but uh, the sort of policy and ethical framework that's gonna drive this in some ways is lagging the technology. Uh, and so the technology, we're right on the cusp of that. That ethical discussion is in a much more nascent phase. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the difference between a human on the battlefield and a robot on the battlefield and the things that could go awry. So a human um, could be underprepared, uh, undertrained for the exercise and make mistakes. Um, the human could be tired and make mistakes. Um, there are a lot of different ways that you know soldiers can make mistakes on the battlefield le leading to uh, problems. But what are some of the issues that could lead to this mistakes for robots? So, you know, when it comes to, you're absolutely right, uh, human beings make mistakes all the time. And so one of the arguments that comes from some of the greatest proponents of using AI uh, for weapon systems is they are not going to be perfect, but as long as they're equal to or better than people in the various areas where we're gonna test them, then we should go ahead with it and we shouldn't expect perfection. So when you look at AI in particular, there are a couple of major issues. Um, I'll, I'll use a couple of buzzwords here, so you'll forgive me, but one of them is what's called brittleness in AI, which is the idea that it doesn't adapt well to other uh, environments. So the idea is if you train a system in a lab where you know there's very little background noise, very, uh, very little to distract it, the objects are easy to pick out, and then you throw it onto a battlefield, the AI is just not gonna be as familiar with that environment. And so it's more likely to make a mistake because it's not as flexible as human reasoning is. It jumps to what can be a very dramatic conclusion much more easily. Um, and you know, part of that is just the sort of human judgment component. We can be more skeptical of conclusions that we reach than machines often are. It's very much for a machine. If I do X, Y, or Z, and this is the appropriate course, uh, this is the appropriate set of steps, Whatever the result is, I will proceed with that. Human beings, if we get a particularly strange result, we're gonna go back and say, hmm, something must have gone wrong. Um, so you, you've got the brittleness issue, you've got, uh, I'd also say that you have the problem of, you know, what an adversary might do with AI, which is things like what's called data poisoning, which is when if an adversary is able to get into the data set that's driving this machine thinking, they can skew the way it thinks. And that can occur with, you know, a good example that researchers did was uh, inserting some small images, uh, small stickers in some cases, into images being fed into a system, and that can fool the system and disrupt the way it thinks and uh, can have substantial consequences when you're talking about life and death. So you mentioned the Terminator conundrum, which has been brought up by the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, you know, he's also brought it up in the sense that, you know, if our adversaries develop autonomous, lethal autonomous weapons, we kind of have to. Is it is it inevitable that robots will someday make kill decisions on the battlefield? So I can tell you that a number of Pentagon documents that look at the sort of roadmaps for autonomy in the future assert point blank that yes, not necessarily that US commanders are actively pursuing it, but that they anticipate because of the direction of the technology, other countries will definitely hand over lethal decision-making to robots. It's going to happen in their eyes. Um, 
that, you know, that doesn't mean it's tomorrow. It doesn't mean we know exactly who will do it. But given the direction of the technology and the speed advantages that are in play when you do remove a human being from that process, it's an inev it's inevitable someone will do it. Um, the sort of additional layer there is, okay, does that create a competitive environment in which the U.S. is more encouraged to do it? And I'd say that a lot of what we're seeing when it comes to the investment and the development of these technologies is based on that competitive itch. It's based on the idea that in particular, China and Russia are aggressively pursuing AI capabilities. And so U.S. planners don't want to fall behind. And so they are pursuing the technology. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the tech maybe being ahead of the policy and ethics. As long as they're pursuing the tech and not falling behind on that front, the policy part is sort of a secondary concern. Um, but yeah, that, that competitive itch is definitely driving a lot of what we've been seeing. And you mentioned speed. I think that is the key. So um, Sun Tzu, Chinese philosopher and military uh, leader from thousands of years ago, said speed is the essence of war. So talk us through a little bit um, about speed and when humans, so in, in, in AI and robotics, we talk about humans in the loop. Um, meaning that they have control of the machine or on the loop where they're sort of supervising the machine and out of the loop where they can't intervene with the machine. So that's what we're talking about, lethal autonomous weapons, where the human is out of the loop. Talk to us about where that, that line is um, that we cross where the speed just becomes too much for the human and we can no longer be in the loop where we actually interfere in positive outcomes on the battlefield. So uh, I don't think there's a hard red line that divides those two, but it's certainly true that uh, even issues like communications uh, over distance can create problems. I mean, if we look at one of the programs we uh, talk about, CMOB, that was based on technology for autonomy for the Mars rover. And that was just an issue of a communications link to Mars taking too long to send messages back and forth to be able to effectively control uh, this rover that was going to be on the surface of Mars. Uh, so, you know, we can look at comms links on Earth are a little quicker, fortunately, um, but you still are going to have issues with being able to analyze large amounts of data, especially when we look at things like drones. You've got huge amounts of video, just a constant sort of faucet of video information that's coming in from these uh, platforms. And if you wanted to really make quick decisions, uh, even now, you, you, you would have to turn over to machines. The intelligence process of analyzing those images, concluding what are the potential targets, and deciding that you have you know, verified that there are minimal number of civilians within the way, all of that's a ponderous and slow process. Um, and so the idea of being able to turn that, the, that over to machines just simply cuts down. I mean, on, on a basic physiological level, human beings, uh, we use the analogy of uh, those playing baseball and being able to react to a pitch, uh, you know, that takes uh, a, a quarter of a second to react and decide what you're going to do. Machines can, it's not quite instantaneous, but nearly instantaneously make decisions. So it, we're, we're slow. We have to accept we are, we are biological creatures that are slow and other things are faster. So tell well, us- if I, could, a little, if I could just yeah, add, go ahead. add one thing. This is Jeff. Um, uh, it, this is a self-reinforcing phenomenon. So if one side adopts uh, weaponry that behaves very, that makes decisions very quickly, then it's incumbent on the other side to develop defensive weaponry that can respond at the same level, machine level of speed. It, the analog is, 
is is um, and the problem is that you careen or can careen towards uh, either unintended or accidental consequences if two sets of machinery are each making decisions uh, that aren't intended to provoke a conflict, but which wind up do uh, provoking the other side, and they're making these decisions at at a pace where it becomes very difficult for humans to intervene to prevent the accident from occurring. The analog is um, some of the things that we're doing to the Earth's climate. Uh, if, for example, we're 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 producing things that warm the the oceans, the oceans are warming, and the that's causing ice melt in the Arctic, which in turn uh, causes planetary warming, which in turn causes more ice melt. It's a, it, think of it as a we're headed in a direction uh, where these technologies can all interact with one another and and make people feel impelled uh, to keep pace uh, with competition uh, just so they're not uh, at a disadvantage on the battlefield. I think that is essentially the Terminator conundrum um, that the vice chairman talked about. It's this kind of you know need to respond to where our adversaries are taking things, and because of the advantage of speed, I think you know in some ways we are going to head in that direction, whether we like it or not. Um, so one more question for you, Zach. Uh, what does the future battlefield like? You mentioned the CMOB. Talk a little bit about some of the military systems the United States is developing that you covered in your article. So if we look at the, the technology that's just over the horizon or right on the horizon, we're talking about systems where much of the navigation, uh, some of the targeting is going to be taken over by machines. Um, but these are all, for the moment, man on the loop to use the terminology um, that's taken root uh, systems. The idea is that the, the computers will move around a platform, an armed platform, they will try to decipher the environment, pick out potential targets, and then there will be a human being somewhere back on a comms link who will have to decide uh, whether they're going to intervene. And that, that's the big sort of distinction, as opposed to they're going to have to decide to pull the trigger, they're going to have to decide whether to intervene. And so we're seeing that with uh, several different naval systems. We've got Sea Hunter, which is looking at anti-submarine warfare. That ship's already sailed from Hawaii to California on its own. Um, they haven't figured out how to arm it yet, but that's the next step. We've got CMOB, which we wrote about, which are smaller ships, and the idea is for them to work in a coordinated swarm to assist in beach landings and other littoral combat. Uh, you've got, uh, there's uh, a system that's out of the army where you're going to have tank guns automatically pointed at potential targets. In that case, at the moment, they're insisting that a human being will be the one to pull the trigger, but frankly, that's a minor technical shift to simply have the trigger automated and have a human being overriding a computer if need be. So all of these are basically to say the transportation side of it, the sort of monotonous getting a weapons platform into position is being taken over by machines. And that is fairly uncontroversial and will be, you know, it's autopilot basically for platforms. That's going to happen real soon. The targeting element where you're having machines figure out what's a target and what's not we're starting to get there with various systems. Uh, in some ways, that was the controversy behind something called Project Maven, which was done with Google, 
where they were using uh, computer vision to try to detect objects within video feeds. Uh, so we're, we're getting there as well. The final element of, okay, do we fully remove the human being such that the person doesn't have to say yes to pull the trigger? That's the element we're not quite there yet, and that may take a while before it's removed. But I will say we've got several senior military officials uh, in an interview that I did, you had the chief of naval research saying that the goal is to get to man on the loop, where the person is simply a supervisor. Okay, all right. So what's interesting about hypersonics and artificial intelligence is they do intersect. And in one, one area where they do is in nuclear deterrence and strategic stability. And there was a piece in War on the Rocks um, uh, titled America Needs a Dead Hand, which is essentially an autonomous command and control system for nuclear weapons, pretty much um, as pretty much taking the decision out of leaders um, control to launch nuclear weapons. There's been a lot of debate and discussion in there. Basically, what's been argued is that the advanced missile technologies like hypersonics, because they shorten the decision making time frame so significantly that the U.S. should consider automating our command and control systems with artificial intelligence. And I'm just curious um, how both of you might respond to this argument. Um, and we'll start with you, Jeffrey. So um, I think there's we're a long way from a, kind of a consensus among defense experts, much less the general public, that letting machines make decisions about the use or deployment of nuclear weapons is a good idea. We're a long way from that. Um, and it, and there, it is true um, that given the acceleration of um, weaponry and arrival times for weaponry, um, that having the man in the loop uh, is increasingly um, difficult. Uh, it's going to make the military um, confront some very difficult dilemmas. Uh, there is an alternative to turning things over to machines. And, and I should say about hypersonic defense that um, the way to, to make a hypersonic defense is to first you have to put these the satellite system in space that can see them better than anything we've got now. And then you have to turn over to the satellites some ability to order the launch of defensive weaponry. Um, because humans, frankly, could not make the launch decisions fast enough. So almost all of the hypersonic defenses that I've heard people talk about do incorporate some degree of artificial intelligence. Now, whether you do this in a nuclear context is a completely different subject. And um, there's an alternative uh, to turning things over to machinery. Uh, which poses all the problems and has all the potential risks that Zach was describing, which is to figure out some way to regulate fast flyers, um, to uh, to see if there's some way to slow uh, or interrupt the deployment of some of the fast flying technology that poses these challenges to military forces. And the idea of restricting uh, or inhibiting um, the deployment of fast flyers has been around for a while, and it's been pushed by Republicans as much as it's been pushed by Democrats. Um, there was a Republican named Fred Clay who worked for Ronald Reagan, who wrote in the 1970s about the risks associated with fast flyers. And <clears throat> as recently as this May, one of Trump's own officials talked talking about the virtues of 
slow-flying strategic bombers said, the wonderful thing about them is, is because of their relative slowness compared to a ballistic missile, <coughs> excuse me, and this is a direct quote, it gives decision makers additional time and space to try to negotiate or reduce in a crisis the opportunity for miscalculation or any unintended or potential escalation. So it's very interesting that you find in snippets of time and statements by different officials, including some Republicans, expressions of anxiety about this world that we're heading towards. It, it all needs a lot more work uh, than it's been applied now if you're going to interrupt this. Uh, I'm not sure that the answer is just to just let the machines make the decisions. Zach, do you want to respond? Um, so at the moment, it doesn't appear that either the U.S. nor uh, other countries are actively pursuing inserting AI into the decision-making process directly on using nuclear weapons. Um, doesn't mean that wouldn't change. Uh, you know, I, I would say that it's clear the desire for speed is such a driving force that military commanders and planners are going to very soon confront the the risk of being slow to respond to another country's nuclear strikes. Uh, it, this argument or this discussion rings similar to me of, uh, as a sort of no first use policy question. Uh, you know, are you willing to accept the risk risk of miscalculation by handing over? Uh, control to an artificially intelligent system in exchange for maintaining the opportunity for preemptive strike, or at least very quick strike in this case. Um, you know, I, I, as a reporter, have no opinions on anything, but I'd say that I think <laughs> we're headed in the direction that uh, in more and more of the process for launching nuclear weapons, especially along the edges, especially along the uh, elements of deciding what would be good targets uh, or calculating the risk of response from a country to certain actions that might turn it into a nuclear conflict. Th those sorts of things are going to be handed over to uh, machines for their thought process. And so it, it's really going to, at the end of the day, be a moral or ethical question as to whether uh, planners are comfortable fully surrendering that kind of authority uh, when it comes to launching two machines. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for those answers. So um, some of my audience are writers, and um, in case they don't know, they should definitely know that Stanley Kubrick uh, has addressed many of these issues, similar issues in his movie Dr. Strangelove, in which there's a doomsday machine, which is essentially what we're talking about, um, and things go awry. I won't say more than that, but um, if you want to kind of see how um, creators or writers have, um, you know, illustrated these issues, it's a great movie to watch. So this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, if audience wants to find out where you are, find out more about your articles that you wrote, where should they go to on the website, on the, on the internet? So our, our website is publicintegrity.org. And um, there's a section that's easy to find from the main page uh, called National Security. And these stories that Zach and I have been discussing are the first two in a long series that, that's still unfolding. And uh, the series is called uh, Scary Fast. I think that was well titled. Um, and are you both on Twitter? Uh, can people follow you on Twitter? Yep, I'm at Zach FB. Z-A-C-H-F-B. 
and I think I'm at uh, RJS uh, CPI. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for your questions. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.